This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm with Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I'm the president and CEO. You could call Thomas Panic the top dog at Guiding Eyes for the Blind. And uh, we have about a thousand working active guide dogs throughout the United States. The boss is also a client. I started to notice that uh, it was difficult to see at night. Eventually the stars in the sky disappeared and I knew something was going on. Uh, it was tough. I was you know, sort of in the beginning suffering, then surviving, and then I learned to thrive. The running creatures, they have 319 bones that are made to move. They're like superheroes, honestly. They've got all these superpowers. And a story he shares on Dangerous Vision has Randy stumped. Give me a sense of how this interaction works because I can't quite figure it out. Today on the Dangerous Vision podcast, we have Thomas Panic, uh, who's going to tell us about running with his guide dog and about participating in trials and lots of other interesting topics. I always ask guests at the beginning because we have a, a guests, of course, have a, a, a range of different vision. Uh, I myself uh, have retinitis pigmentosa. I have a little bit uh, of eyesight left, not too much, but just barely enough to kind of see the screen of my phone and, and other minor things. What's what's your situation and sort of how's it gotten there in, in your life? Today? Well, I'm kind of your brother in that. I have RP as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I started to notice that uh, it was difficult to see at night when I was... Uh, just a boy, you know, going out riding my bike at night and eventually the stars in the sky disappeared and I knew something was going on. Um, but, uh, I have very little left now and, um, you know, I had a driver's license, had to give that up and, uh, did all the things that anybody that's losing their sight had to go through. Uh, it was tough. I was, you know, sort of in the beginning suffering, then surviving. And then I learned to thrive with it. I think it's just one of those things where, as you well know, you just overcome and make the best of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I have RP as well. And probably I would say, um, in my better eye, I'm looking at about 2,200 right now. You know, I, I'm really interested in names. And, you know, I wonder, I don't know if runners have nicknames the way football and basketball players do, but I can't help but wonder if they refer to you as Thomas Blind Panic. <laughs> Uh, they, they don't, but, uh, certainly when I wear a blind runner on my bib, uh, people do call me that blind runner and uh, running with my dog. Sometimes they yell blind dog, which is very dangerous if you think about it, but yeah, uh, if the dog were also blind, that seems like that would be pretty, pretty problematic. They, uh, so let's, yeah, so let's, let's jump right into that topic. So as I understand it, you, you, uh, you torture dogs, is that right? I mean, if somebody forced me to go out and run half marathons, I would feel that that was some kind of uh, cruel fate. So, so let's, let's start. How do we know the dogs are okay with this? Well, first of all, dogs are running creatures. And if you've ever had a dog, what's the number one thing you're trying to teach them to do other than sit and stay? You're trying to teach them to heal. And why is that? Because their natural pace is our running pace. They're, they're running creatures. They have 319 bones that are made to move. And dogs, when they're happiest, they're running together. And so it's just capturing that natural pace of the dog and slowing them down that makes them our pets. But if you think about it, you let them go at their natural pace, we have to run. And that's what uh, this program was all about, is just trying to keep up with so them. really in it for the dogs. <laughs> you can say <laughs> we, that. we work for them. They, uh, yeah. So I guess I buy that up to a point, but is it true that, that over these distances, you know, there's that uh, Born to Run book that sort of argues that we're kind of the best runners uh, out there and that, that, that uh, uh, I thought he had a really nice story along the lines of like, you know, there's this Prometheus fire myth and the, and the idea is that like, well, all the other animals, you know, they've got teeth and 
claws and leathery skin and so forth. And we're just these pathetic, you know, bags of meat. Uh, but what, what gives us our edge is, uh, is intelligence, right? The, the spark. And yet people argue that that can't be right because we've only had tools and technology and all that for 10,000 years or a hundred thousand, you know, but we, we were out there for millions of years out on the Savannah. And, and I guess he argues that, that, uh, our ability to cover long distances in a day to cover, to collect food and, and so forth is, is unparalleled and, and stuff. So, uh, any, any thoughts on, on all that on animals? Yeah, I, 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 I do actually. Chris, Chris is a great guy and I actually run with my, uh, guide runner, Scott Jurek, who is featured in that book, Born to Run. He's the one who beats the Terrahimera <laughs> Indians, uh, and actually proves that, uh, you know, that, uh, he, he is just as capable as a runner as, uh, that culture is. But the, the point there is that we can sweat and we basically run the animals that we're trying to track down in those times to death. But if you think about it, who, which animal has evolved together with us over 35,000 years? And that's the dog. It's so much so that our ancestors, when they looked into the night sky and they saw the seven brightest stars, they called it the dog star or Canis Major. So you see that there is this direct connection between us evolving with our, you know, wolf pack uh, cousins, uh, which are ultimately the creatures that we run along with. So it's no wonder that, you know, we've trained these dogs nowadays, we call them service dogs, to do so many wonderful different things for us humans. Uh, yes, we, are, <laughs> we have the advantage of being able to run, but I would uh, say that the dogs have the ability to run just as capably, but maybe not as long distances. That's why for example, for the marathon, I had a relay of dogs running with me. So it wasn't just one dog. Uh, I switched off uh, between oh, three dogs. And, and so did each of them do uh, – do, do you do it in one-third chunks or is the point that like a dog does a mile and then comes back again a little while later when it's their turn to do another the way, mile? Yeah, that's a great question. The way we did is we started in this, this race uh, with uh, a dog in Prospect Park, which is a park in Brooklyn. And the first dog did five miles. Uh, out the gate. Uh, there's 20,000 runners running alongside of us and he's just fitting right in. Uh, we do a U-turn with uh, the elite, elite runners kind of come at us. We do a U-turn and then go back uh, it, just over uh, by the Manhattan Bridge. And at that point, the dog is identifying his uh, the other dog that's waiting on the sideline. So he's targeting that next dog that he already knows. Thomas ran the New York City Half Marathon as the first runner fully guided by his trained guide dogs. Thomas ran with three labs, making national headlines. From NBC News, this is Today. When Thomas yeah. Panic heads out for a run, right, it's uh, never without his dog. Nice. Because Gus isn't just a good training partner, he's Tom's eyes. Run. So it sort of made sense. Trust it me. takes special I'm training. Have you hold my arm uh -huh. and close your eyes. And a and special kind of trust. Of wow. Are you trusting him? I'm trying. <laughs> Gus leads us around obstacles in Central Park. There's a little bit of ice. And make sure oh we're gosh. not dogging it. Gus, you're setting a fast pace here, buddy. <laughs> Thomas's organization, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, helps train dogs for others. And this month, he will become the first blind runner to complete a half marathon with a canine companion. Where'd you get so fast? Three dogs will take turns guiding Tom, but it will be Gus who crosses the finish line, his final task before retiring. He deserves a medal. He really does. A man and his dog showing the rest of us. Almost there, buddy. If you have a disability, there are really no limits. But there are plenty of finish lines ahead. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. The, the, the 
most amazing thing I've read in the last month, but dogs have these two muscles, one on each side of their face, that basically enable them to make puppy dog eyes. Um, the labs are very willing to please. Shepherds have their own minds about how to do things. Okay, so let's go back to, to running with dogs, and then we'll talk about sure. guide dogs more generally, obviously, because of your uh, uh, big, you know, what you do there. But, but uh, so, so yeah, tell me. So it's it's not just a normal leash. I assume is the point that it's it's more of a straight stick attached uh, to the dog. Is that what it, I should? It, be well, thinking? it's very interesting. The traditional guide dog harness is a lot like a horse and buggy. It's got leather. As a matter of fact, American Leather that manufactures those uh, horse and buggy things in the past does the guide dog harnesses. So it's been a very traditional uh, harness that's been around for I, forever. I wanted to ask about that, whether this is a normal leash. But by the way, before we leave the co-evolution, I have to say just that the, the, the most amazing thing I've read in the last month was a piece you may have seen in the Atlantic Monthly that said that basically dogs have these uh, um, a muscle or two muscles, one on each side of their face, that they evolved that wolves do not have that basically enable them to make puppy dog eyes. Right, it's incredible. Basically, you know, uh, obviously, like if we think in evolutionary terms, they, they essentially make themselves look more like human babies, which we evolved to adore human babies and want to take care of. Uh, and then you just think, my God, evolution can do anything. It can do anything, and, it, and I'll tell you that uh, it's interesting because you know, we had puppies in the home. My kids and I, we volunteer social socialize guiding ice puppies uh, before their guide dogs, and boy, they are cute when you pick them up. And after three days, you realize how much work they are and all the effort that goes into them. So they got to be cute, right? They can hear better. They they're like superheroes. Honestly, they've got all these superpowers, and all we do is we try to capture some of those superpowers and bring them out. And in this case, it was to help us uh, to help you know guide blind people uh, to stay active. But if you want, goes out and wants to run a long distance race, you need to have a training plan, you need to develop, make sure that, uh, you know, medically you're ready for it. So we had veterinarians on hand, they would check their heart rate. And to be honest with you, what's a little bit embarrassing is even though I was running the race at full tilt for me, you know, we were running anywhere from uh, uh, seven minute mile, eight minute mile, nine minute mile, depending on the crowds and you know, the dog's heart rate didn't even increase at all. It's, uh, <laughs> it is amazing. I, you know, I, I remember reading that they're saying that like, if you just like go and grab a random goat, right there that goat is significantly faster than usain bolt is right and like goats are not famous as fast animals right but even so they're faster over short distances at least they're faster than the fastest humans you know uh, look they've got four legs so you know presumably there are some advantages to that i'm thinking dude guide running goats i think we got something here So let's talk about guide dogs more generally. I, I guess I did a I did a terrible job as usual on, on introducing you and didn't give you your power. So why, why don't you just say you're you're, you're guiding? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm with Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I'm yep. the president and CEO, and uh, we have about a thousand working active guide dogs throughout the United States, and we're a world leader in gene, uh, genetics and breeding of uh, service dogs. Uh, and you know we do a lot of partnerships and collaborations with the other guide dog schools out there to provide. Uh, um, you know, people who are visually impaired with mobility independence. Uh, we have our main campus in Yorktown Heights, New York, where people can come for a residential program, which lasts about three weeks. The guide dogs are given at no cost, along with lifetime support. And, uh, you know, for anybody that's had a guide dog, we mostly uh, train Labrador retrievers. I have Gus at my feet. He is uh, the dog that completed the New York Half Marathon with me. He's been with me for about five years. And uh, we also train uh, German Shepherds as well. 
So, so uh, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you about Shepherds because somebody I, I talked to somebody at the guide dog, and they said, "Well, here are kind of your choices. You can kind of get the retrievers or the shepherds." And the way to think of it, and and I'll just repeat what they said, and then you can tell me the truth because I know nothing. But I just like to say crazy, stupid stuff to get the conversation started. No, this person's a very smart person, so I'm sure their their opinion was well thought out. But it doesn't mean you'll agree. Uh, uh, and what they told me was, um, you know, w- that that basically the shepherds are just unbelievably smart, and the retrievers. You know they're amazing too, but but compared to the shepherds, not nearly so much. Uh, but they said what's nice with the retriever is that basically, if you just want to sit there at your computer all day, the retriever will just kind of sit at your feet and be okay with that. Whereas the shepherds, like, let's go, we got to do stuff. What are you talking? Why why, why are you wasting my time? <laughs> um, and so you have to decide if you're comfortable, kind of, w- with that kind of uh, commitment. Uh, do you think there's fundamental truth in that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, the shepherds are they're herding animals, and they've got a different gait, and they're really made to move, and they want to move. They're vocal when they're sitting in the office. Oftentimes they are more vocal, not all of them. There's like people that have different personalities and there are some shepherds that are not that active and some labs that are incredibly active. But generally speaking, I think there's some truth to what you said. Um, the labs are very willing to please. Shepherds have their own minds about how to do things. Uh, so, you know, from from the extent, from the standpoint of, can I get this Labrador to, you know, be my partner and to get the job done? Can the shepherd get the job done? Absolutely. Shepherds are very accurate dogs. Uh, the Labradors tend to want to please. So, you know, they kind of feel bad when they did something wrong. And I think, uh, you know, we train all of our dogs with positive reinforcement. That's changed a lot of these dynamics over the years. It's really looking at how do you give them food rewards? How do you make that a positive experience getting to the curb instead of a you know compulsion training experience? So I think we've evolved a lot in our training techniques to kind of bring out the best of the different dogs. But also, you know, out of all the dogs that we breed, only about a third of them end up as guide dogs. So we're really choosing the dogs that are have the ability to settle, like you mentioned, whether it's a lab or a shepherd, as well as the capability of doing a great job guiding. They go through a test called the final blindfold. So they've got a with a trainer that's blindfolded through New York streets, you know, mm-hmm. and make sure that, uh, like in White Plains, New York, that they're able to safely navigate traffic. So, you know, if it's going to be a guide dog from Guiding Eyes for the Blind or, you know, many of the great schools out there, you know, we have a standard that we adhere to. Once they pass that standard, I think uh, either a shepherd or lab is just a personal preference. Yeah. The, uh, now, you say there's other great schools out there, but I mean, not as good as oh, yours, right? I, I tell you what we do better, though. We, we, we have an exceptionally gifted, uh, talented team of trainers that works on our specialized training program. We uh, serve people who are deafblind. Um, you know, some of our trainers know protectile sign language, the ability to communicate nonverbally to both the dog and the students using a yeah. uh, feedback. And the other thing we do really well is the running guys program. So we're right now the only school in the world that is offering that program. Our wait wait list is growing, but it's not just for athletes or marathon runners. Anybody who has an aspiration to kind of go out there and stay fit as a park or maybe a, you know, a track uh, related to the school and their area. You know, this is something that your guide dog is a guide dog first and foremost, but we have trained the dog to safely navigate a route at a faster pace. And uh, for those people that those individuals that want to do that they have to come to us because there's no one else out there in the world doing it so uh, I see. And, and is there one breed that that's turned out to be the best for the you know the first bird? couple Gus was the first Labrador and then we had a German Shepherd named Klinger he was the first uh, Shepherd and uh, so we've tried both we found that both are effective uh, and it's really about the dog that wants to run so 
you know, just like people, some people love to run, some people forget about it unless something's, you know, chasing them, they don't want to run. So at the end of the day, we have about 170 dogs right now in our training center that are kind of getting through the training process. And we have a full-time staff member, an ultra runner uh, named Nick Spronza, who he spent his time just taking one dog out at a time saying, hey, you want to go for a run? Dog looks at him, sits down, gives him puppy dog. I want to go back in there. Well, guess what? That dog's not going to do it. But then you got some dogs that are... It's like uh, it's like ringing out yeah, of the Navy SEALs training. Like yeah. Navy SEALs are dogs, <laughs> and you know the ones that want to step up to the plate and say, "Hey, I want to get out there every day." Those are the ones we select for the running guide program. So, so now my question is: If I get a guide dog, I mean, do I do the path a few times and then I just like say work every time at the end, and then the dog's like, "Okay," and then when I, if I say take me to work, he the dog does, or is the idea that I'm sort of telling the dog turn by turn or does the dog make assumptions about where we're going then I have to tell them if known today we're not going to work today we're going to get my hair cut (laughs) (laughs) how this interaction works because I can't quite figure it out it, it's it's really interesting. It's a, it's a lot of the third variable. It, it, you know, the dog will know a, a known path. I'll land at an airport in DC, and the dog will say, "Okay, landing at gate, need to get to Metro." Or, and I'm like, "No, today I'm going to take an Uber, so we're going to turn left." But you know, in his mind, he's getting to the Metro. So. For your case, he's going to want to do that mile walk the same every day. They're patterned creatures. They love habits. He's going to get so excited, like going to work. Uh, He's going to want to do that same that same walk for you. He's going to know where to stop. He's going to know the curbs. He's going to know the up curbs. You know, light poles to work around. He's really going to nail it. Uh, And then if you're like, oh no, I do not want to go there today. I want to stop for a coffee or meet a friend. Um, You have to redirect him. Sometimes he'll stubborn. You have to tell him a couple of times, no, I really don't want to go there. But they are, uh, they're really taught uh, to disobey you if you give them a command that's going to put you in harm's way. So, you know, if you tell them, no, I want to go get a coffee and you're no, going to the left. No, I want to walk into that pit. Prioritize the coffee or getting hit by the bus. So they're very good at it. I, I travel extensively with Gus. I've been around the world a few times uh, with my guide dogs. And, you know, they, I, the same like you, I've gotten seriously injured uh, over time. Uh, broken, um, you know, my, my left leg, both arms, my head, a couple of ribs. So, you know, you get yourself into the situations, but never once have I gotten injured in 25 years while working with a guide wow, dog. So, so it really is uh, an incredible mobility tool. Yes, you can't park them in the corner. Uh, you've got to take care of them. You've got to feed them. You've got to take them to the vet. You've got to groom them. Uh, they do need to go outside uh, or you're going to have some cleanup duty. So, you know, these are the trade-offs that people have. And not everybody's a dog person. Uh, some people get the dog. Uh, that that's their first dog ever. Other people have had pets and they're accustomed to it. So it really is a personal decision. Uh, and uh, But I can tell you firsthand that uh, we have field reps located throughout the United States. So if it's a listener like you uh, or you know somebody who would be interested in knowing what it's like, we will send someone out to your home, look at you and evaluate your area, as well as uh, one of our field reps will take a harness uh, and let you feel like what it's like to travel with a guide dog. Is that something that is appealing to you or after going through that process, do you say, eh, maybe not. Uh, so it really is a, a application process of trying to work and meet the individual, what their needs are. Uh, if you decide, okay, I want to run to work every day, we're going to assess to see if that's a safe environment for you to run to, you know, uh, a lot of street crossing is probably not a good idea, but if it's kind of a, you know, a full path and you've got not many pedestrians and bicycles to encounter, then, you know, that's another uh, example of how we pattern a route. So, you know, all of the above, really, of what you said are, are, are true. Uh, the dog will pattern a route. It will 
sometimes take you to the regular route, and sometimes you got to tell the dog where to go. Coming up, I mean, unless you're a zookeeper and you're around a lot of animals that are, you know, not accustomed to having a dog nearby, it's, it's I really have seen dogs go into all environments. Don't get a guide dog if you, I don't know, have a tiny apartment, if you live in the desert, if you're crotchety. I, I keep putting it off because of not uh, wanting to make the commitment. And yet I know intellectually that like within 10 days of having that dog, I'm going to think, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? I'm an idiot, you know, and, and it's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, so tell me about, look, part of the hurdle is tell, tell me about the training process. Like, like I've heard of things where you kind of go to the equivalent of like a camp in a cabin and spend a few weeks there with the dog. Is it one of those? I've heard there's other schools where the dog comes to you with, how does, how does all that go? We have, uh, I can speak for ourselves, we have a residential training program at Guiding Eyes for the Blind. It's a, you know, it's a hotel style uh, room. You get your own room. You can come and live on the campus for the first time for up to three weeks. To kind of week one, you go out, you choose a dog. We've got to match the right dog for you. That's incredibly important based on your pace, your lifestyle, what you'll be doing. So we really want to spend some time with you to see if that dog is the right match. And then we start kind of in a, 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 a I would say, a semi-city environment. And then we move all the way up to New York City. And as they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Things where uh, you know by the time you leave the campus, we have enough confidence you'll be able to you know traverse Times Square with your dog, 80th and Broadway to the station. If you can do that, you know we're very comfortable that you're going to be good. So that takes three weeks. We also have a home training program where if you do, if you're not able to leave work or you're you know really uh, you have some family commitments or health commitments uh, that keep you in the local area, the waiting time is longer for that because as you can imagine, that's someone coming. To your home area and bringing the dog to you and training in your home environment, but that's available as well uh, for individuals. Uh, we have no cabins, I have to say. Sometimes I wish we did, uh, but uh, we have no cabins to go out and uh, you know in in, in 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 that kind of environment. It really is a residential school program. Uh, you know, a fitness center. We have a chef, so we keep everybody fed, happy, and healthy. And uh, you know, meet any nutritional needs or health needs. We have four nurses on staff that are available to people. Uh, we have veterinarians on staff, and uh, just a great collegial environment of people going through this transition together. You know, for a lot of people, it's the first time they've been around someone else with uh, with a visual impairment. Other people are, uh, you know, uh, very familiar with the uh, the. the uh, blindness community and, uh, you know, are active in that, either in advocacy or employment. So they're coming to the campus with full knowledge. Uh, it's people from all walks of life. And uh, it is a commitment, I have to say. And, you know, maybe that's why a lot of us procrastinate that. I was 26 before I got my first guide dog. Yeah. Are there any don'ts that you would suggest, uh, you know, don't get a guide dog if you, I don't know, have a tiny apartment, if you live in the desert, if you're crotchety, I don't know. Are, are there are there any kind of people where you say, you know what, this would be, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, if you just don't like dogs and that makes sense. But but are there any others where you have so, sort of seen maybe a low success rate where it's like, yeah, this kind of person, it tends to not work out? Really? I mean, unless you're a zookeeper and you're around a lot of animals that are, you know, not accustomed to having a dog nearby. It's, it's, I really have seen dogs go into all environments. Really small apartments, not not a problem. That's that's dogs in Hong Kong, incredibly tight spaces. I've traveled to Japan with a dog twice, and so you know there's tight quarters there, and no the dog is really there to, to kind of. Yeah, fit but those in. walls are made of that rice paper. You just walk right through them. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you're sleeping on the mats too, the straw mats. Exactly. No, there's, yeah, there's there's really no. It's really about the person and whether they make the commitment to the dog. But I, I've taken dogs everywhere and anywhere, on boats, planes. You know. Oh yeah. That's a good question too. So, so are there are there 
times when you leave your when you travel and leave the dog behind? Are there circumstances where you're like, yeah, this is this is not going to be a good place? Um, to I would say if you're going out to a rock concert or you know a, oh, yeah, a concert, I left my dog uh, at home last night because it was July Fourth fireworks, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we went out with my family and just did sighted guide. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know ordnance exploding in the sky, and that doesn't make them very happy. Yeah. and that's not really fair. But for the most part, um, when I leave my dog at home, I leave my mobility at home. So now mm-hmm. I'm dependent on someone else. Yeah. And I have terrible cane skills, I have to tell you. Uh-huh. So it's hard for me because I don't practice to go back to using a cane. But from time to time, uh, I do leave the dog behind and, and I miss him. Now, to the best of uh, our knowledge, no one will ever listen to this podcast. So this is really just between you and me. When you're the head of the organization, do they call you every once in a while and say, hey, we've got a super dog here. This is the best dog we've seen in five years. So, you know, we're, we're going to get you this dog. Uh, it's actually ironic to ask me that because I'm waiting for my next dog. Gus is officially retired and uh, and everybody's joking around saying I kind of need to go through the same process as everybody else. And I'm still waiting. It's been uh, the better part of nine months right now. So I think what they're looking for for anybody is what's your lifestyle what dog is going to be the best match for you i want to ask you about one more thing before we get into like my final questions that i said and that is about you mentioned that you were in a clinical trial so should i be looking around for trials that could help should i wait and uh and let thomas be the guinea pig and then if it works great then i'll use it but other but if it if it you know causes you know your blood to catch fire then it'll be his problem uh so tell us about your experience so uh, you know like anybody else it's one of those those exact questions that cross your mind like do i do this am i going to be a human guinea pig i i think what's what's really been pretty amazing is i'm currently participating in the jcyte trial which is uh, jcyte and it's a uh, you know a specifically towards people with uh, retinitis pigmentosa and it's geared towards uh, having active progenitor stem cells injected in the eye to see if uh, there's an opportunity for those stem cells to essentially provide the rods and cones that deteriorate over time with growth factors that will either arrest the degeneration or potentially uh, hopefully be able to ultimately rebuild uh, the rods and cones. And uh, it's, it's been a journey, I'll tell you, and I'll share this openly, that uh, you know, you're, you're in one of three groups when you're in a trial. You're usually in the placebo or the sham, which, you know, mm. going through the whole process and all the testing and the eye charts and the mazes and the visual fields tests and everything. And you may not have had the treatment. So, you know, that's one thing is you're going to be just there for the sake of, you know, supporting science. And I think with anything, whether, you know, you're trying to find a cure for cancer or heart disease, you know, there's there's somebody along the way has said, hey, I want to I want to commit, commit myself to contributing to science. The flip side is if you go through the clinical trial and you get the placebo, well, then the second time around, so your trial, you get to actually guarantee that you will get the treatment, which is which is nice. Uh, but you know, with any treatment, there are risks. Everybody has to assess what those risk factors are. You could potentially have an increase in uh, in eye pressure. You could potentially lose some of your useful vision. Uh, but you know, I got to a point. I'm uh, 49 years old this year, and I got to a point where I said, "Look, I don't have that much useful vision. This is science. It's cutting edge. It can help humankind uh, with it." potentially solve a human problem. Stem cell research has been everything from a sham to incredibly promising over the years. And I think we've just got to the point where if you're going to participate in a stem cell research program, it should be a clinical trial that is with a respectable uh, organization or hospital system. Uh, and I think those are the things to really check to make sure that that clinical trial actually has a either university or a reputable ophthalmologic uh, consultant practice associated with it uh, so that you know, you're getting 
putting yourself into a trial that could potentially be successful. Um, I will tell you that it's very promising and it's very hopeful. And I think, uh, you know, am I going to be able to drive a car tomorrow? Probably if it's an autonomous driving vehicle. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think unless people are really willing to commit to this and, uh, you know, fortunately people are in the science community. And so you need people to participate in these studies if we ever want to make a difference. And because, you know, we have an inherited um, disorder, it's something that potentially I, I believe in we need to work together on. So. So I think that's the main reason for participating. It's a very personal decision. And on the, on the upside, with all those downsides and on the upside, you may restore some of uh, your useful vision. So incredible prom incredibly promising to participate in, in a uh, clinical trial. There's gene therapies out there as well. Do your research. Ask a lot of questions. And a lot of times the clinical trial people will say, can't answer it. Well, ask somebody else then. You know, talk to a doctor, a friend, a person. And I certainly talk to friends of mine who are eye surgeons that were not you know, not participating in the trial and reached out and asked the right questions. And I felt at a certain point, the risk was going to outweigh, uh, the rewards are going to outweigh the potential risk. So uh, the trial is in phase 2B, 3 right now. So the third version of it, and they're working efficacy as well as therapeutic value of uh, stem cell injections in the eye. And I think anybody can go online and uh, research about RP if that's, if that's what well, you let have. Let me ask real quick, do you, um, I, obviously neither of us is a, is a doctor or, or a researcher, but what's, what's your read on the stem cell thing? You think, I mean, like, you know, the neuron results seem pretty promising. You've been some good press releases from Jason. What, what do you, do you think this is going to, this is going to cure us someday? I mean, quote unquote cure. I think it'll probably be a race between three things. As, as we all know, and you, you know, what I read and everybody else has access to the same information out there. It's going to be a race between technology, uh, gene therapy, and stem cells, yeah. and we're going to see which which one, which horse wins. It's funny. My doctor <laughs> friends are all super skeptical of the chip, the technology solution. And what I keep trying to say to them is, look, I understand where you're coming from. You like, you know, you, we can play around the lab all we want. We're not going to match a billion years of evolution. But the way I see it is this. Like getting the getting the, the gene therapy to work in the eye, that's a billion dollar product. But getting the chip to work is a trillion dollar product because everyone on earth is gonna want that. Then you can play video games in your head. Right. Then you can then you can like watch the karate kid just by, you know, thinking, watch karate kid now. And so once they like that's something that has to happen. Like society's not going to live without that for one minute longer than it has to. It's really hard enough to get my kids not to play for uh, Believe me, I, I, exactly. You and me both. You and me both. And and uh, but you know, so I think that that that's just something the world will demand and will spend a near infinite amount of money uh, to make it happen. Now, whether it can happen quick enough for you and me, I don't know. But at least when we think about future generations, because as you say, it's an inherited thing, and uh, and uh, we've uh, you know we're, we've got descendants to think of. So uh, absolutely. Let me turn to, I always like to, uh, towards the end of the podcast, ask people, first of all, about book recommendations. As I always say, I, I more or less lost the ability to read books when my eyesight was shot. Yeah, there were books on tape, but they were slow and painful. Now, audible.com sort of improved that situation. The real savior for me has been Bookshare. 
which enables me to you know download books in text form and, and have them you know machine read at at you know more or less triple speed and and it's fantastic so now I read books so now I'm catching up right because for like years I you know could only read stuff online and couldn't couldn't read books and so I'm looking for incredibly entertaining books I mean obviously if you have a book that everybody should read related to blindness or whatever you know feel free to mention that but that's not really what I'm asking for what I'm asking for is what's the book that when you read it you're like oh my god I want to just read it read it again right away you know like that or, or just that you know if, if you said if I said hey I'm going to be in traction for a week what's the most entertaining thing I can do to help me get through this incredibly boring week uh, you got any you got any good tips and, and it's not a book a, a, a movie uh, uh, anything you know anything I, I, I have to say that uh, I, I'm a voracious reader and I do read iBooks and, uh, and, I, and I love to read and uh, so many books that uh, you know that come to mind I think if you're uh, if, if you're going to follow through with uh, what we were talking about earlier in the, in the podcast I think Born to Run by Chris McDougall comes to mind it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a book that really has you think about uh, kind of our our human species and how we sort of came to be these running creatures and also uh, inspires a lot of people to get out there and to be active uh, I think that, that that's a great one to, to put forth and uh, Chris is actually working on another book right now and uh, he's had a couple of other books out there I think that's a great one so I would recommend Born to Run by Chris McDougall. Fantastic. Well, you know, one, the most interesting thing I've read lately, and I, I, you know, one problem I have is because these podcasts, I just treat them like conversations, you know, with, with a friend. I can't remember which things I talked about on the podcast and which things I talked about with friends. So listeners, if, if you already heard me say this, fast forward through it. Uh, the, the, um, is, I'm reading a book called Why Do People Sing? Um, and it's it actually the book is available online. I couldn't find it through Bookshare, but then it turned out that the author just posted it. He's a, uh, a musicologist who studies um, and, and this sort of this puzzle, which is why, um, like, we're the only land animal that sings. Okay, so if you think about it, right, like you just don't see creatures that live on the land singing. Sure, if you live up in the treetops, you can sing because nothing can get up there to eat you, right? But you're, but right, and then in the ocean, there are creatures that sing, but it doesn't seem to happen on land. And so then you say, well, what are the creatures? Um, that have like markings and stuff that call attention to themselves, and it's bumblebees and rattlesnakes and black widow spiders. And so what he argues is these are these are creatures that have a powerful defensive weapon, right? And so then he says, okay, so they're warning things away. So then it must be the case that humans um, are warning things uh, away with our singing. And so then he argues, based on his study of music, you know, throughout the world and throughout history, that uh, the the uh, that the haka, that if you ever watch the New Zealand rugby team at the beginning. Of, of their games basically like six guys like put their arms around each other and kind of chant very loudly and somewhat frighteningly uh it's very sort of warlike and so forth and he says look imagine that that you're a lion and then these guys get together and start doing this you're looking at that thing and saying that thing weighs 800 pounds and it's not afraid it's not afraid to call attention to itself and then the question is well what is our powerful defensive weapon what's our equivalent of the bumblebee sting and his answer is hitting stuff with rocks he said hitting things with rocks is not a good offensive weapon if you ever try to kill a rabbit by throwing a rock at it you will discover that you this is something you cannot do right but if a wolf is jumping up to kill you and you hit it in the head with a rock like especially if there's a bunch of you you do have a decent chance against that wolf you're not a sure thing to survive that encounter but it's not a great bet for the wolf the wolf should look for for easier prey and um anyway he then goes on to extend this into a a whole theory of our evolution similar in many ways to, to born to run so if you enjoyed born to run and this is a book again you know by all means you know buy it if you can find it in a bookstore but as i say since i couldn't find it on bookshare if there's other blind readers this is something you can download and uh and read with voice stream or whatever and uh 
uh, and uh, has a, a similar vibe, I think. So. The next marathon, I'm going to carry a rock while I run. Yes, that's, yes, uh, that's good thinking. You won't pay, well, you've got a dog to defend you, so who needs a rock when, you, when you've got Gus there? Um, so my last question that I like to ask people is, I always feel like, look, I'm not an interviewer. I'm a professor. Uh, I love having these conversations, but I'm sure that a skilled interviewer would like be much better than I am at sort of eliciting your best and most interesting stories. And so I'm just going to go with the desperate fallback maneuver of saying, what's the story that if I were a better interviewer, I would have gotten you to tell? Like, what's just your favorite story? If you're like at a, at a party and you want to amuse people, you know, and everybody's paying attention to you, like you got, you know, anything you got doesn't have to have anything to do with being blind. Although I have found being blind does lead to a lot of funny stories. If you don't mind, you know, telling stories where, uh, uh, you know, I'm the butt of the joke. <laughs> I don't mind telling those kind of stories and uh, boy, you caught me off guard. I didn't really, uh, yeah, fly. Sure. You know, I think that you, you go through a lot of situations where when you're blind, you know, you, you sort of have these moments of embarrassment and, you know, you, you sort of say, okay, how am I going to deal with this situation? Should I just admit that, you know, I really couldn't see or should I come up with some really long mm-hmm. excuse? Why I just exactly. put a bowl into my mouth of person and sitting at a dinner party saying to myself, why did that man just swallow that bowl? You know? oh my God. I was at, I was out to sushi with, with a with a portion and and and, and I and, and she just like grabs me and says don't don't eat the wasabi. Put the whole thing in your mouth and just Actually, wasabi as I'm turning red. Exactly. Oh, this is really I'm doing it on purpose. The entire thing in my mouth, turning red, beet red, sweating all over my tuxedo, and drinking out of the fishbowl. You know that was all intentional. So the fishbowl is exaggeration, but the rest is not. So. I think, you know, being blind, you got to have a sense of humor. I mean, you do the silliest, stupidest things and it's certainly not your fault and you shouldn't, shouldn't blame yourself for it, but I've come up with some little whoppers like that. And, uh, you know, over time you just sort of kind of take it in stride and, uh, and, and do what you got to do to, to stay light and, and be humorous about it and, and laugh at yourself because, you know, sometimes because everybody is. else is laughing at us. <laughs> <laughs> May as well join in. That's what I say. Somebody, you know, wasabi. Ask, yeah. ask the, uh, ask, ask them if they're visually impaired. That's yeah. probably the only excuse to be doing I, I literally will at the beginning of a dinner if i if i'm having a business dinner and the people don't know me well i'll, I'll be like look just so you know i'm I, and especially this was well now it's obvious i'm blind i have the stick and everything but but when i didn't though it was when i had really really bad eyesight but didn't think of myself as blind. and i would sit down and be like guys i can't see anything here in the dark so if i like stick my hand in the mustard that's not because i'm uncouth it's actually because i can't see because yeah it turns out that's slightly less embarrassing is to be blind rather than uncouth i guess double dipping in the salsa a whole new perspective when you put your whole hand in there exactly exactly all right well listen this has been such a pleasure thank you so so much for coming on the dangerous vision podcast it's great to meet you and great to talk to you it's been a pleasure i'm sorry i did my big finish and yet i should say one more thing sorry if people want to uh i knew i would forget to do this but i'm doing it anyway um if people want to uh, uh, do something for the for the cause. Uh, do you want to give them a website address or other things to, to because I think a lot of people will be inspired. Uh, by if you need a dog, you want to get involved in our organization, want to raise a puppy, uh, volunteer, donate. Uh, Guiding Eyes for the Blind. The website is Guiding Eyes G U I D I N G, just like Guiding and Eyes E Y S dot org. You can also email me President at Guiding Eyes dot org. And uh, thank everybody who's currently raising for us a puppy raiser, a donor, or a graduate. Uh, you know, without your support, we wouldn't be able to do the work we do. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired.